Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Forty-six thousand deaths in America every single year. We have more guns than people in the United States. And yet somehow many states across the country are working to make it easier to get guns, easier to carry guns, and easier to kill people without consequence. This is partly because of the lies of the gun industry. And to help us sort through the myths and find the truth, we've invited one of my favorite humans back on the show, Fred Guttenberg. Fred Guttenberg's daughter, Jamie, was murdered in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting in 2018. And since then, Fred has been one of the world's leading voices in gun violence prevention. He is co-author of the new book, American Carnage, which is now available. We've had about as many mass shootings as days this year, and we could be on a record pace as a nation for the number of mass shootings. Senator Rubio, I just listened to your opening, and thank you. I want to like you. Here's the problem. And I'm a brutally honest person, so I'm just going to say it up front. When I like you, you know it, and when I'm pissed at you, you know it. Your comments this week and those of our president have been pathetically weak. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping the very soul of the nation. When are we going to do something to solve for this uniquely American problem? That question has become even more urgent over the last week, one where we have seen an alarming series of shootings involving people who made simple mistakes. I'm Fred Guttenberg, and today we're going to talk about the gun lobby and how they turned my daughter, Jamie, into a cost of their doing business. We're going to take on the bullshit from that gun lobby and why they've been so dangerous to this country. Sorry, not sorry. Fred, thank you so much for being here and welcome back to Sorry, Not Sorry. If you wouldn't mind, just remind our listeners a little bit about who you are and the amazing work that you do and why you do it. Who I am is really simple. I'm a dad. That's who I am. I've never tried to be anything but. However, my world did change just over five years ago when this dad sent his two children to school on February 14th, 2018, Valentine's Day, the day of love, to learn safely in a community that my wife and I chose because it is known for its safety. And there was a shooting. 
and my children were in the Parkland school shooting. I learned about it that afternoon, just after 2 p.m., when my son called me to tell me, and I had to convince him to run because he couldn't find his sister. And um, over the course of that phone call, we heard more shots, and those were the shots that were killing his sister. They were on the third floor. And ever since that day, my life has turned upside down, Alyssa. The immediate aftermath was just trying to figure out how to get through seconds and minutes. And then I had to get to planning a funeral. And then I had to figure out how I get my family through the next few hours and days. And about a week later, I ended up starting this crazy mission to stop the next one which has become my life for the past five years. Along the way, I have had the great fortune of meeting great people like you. In fact, you came into my life really early on in this process. The shooting was in February. I think you reached out only weeks after. And we were meeting for the first time in person in April of 18 in Dallas at the NRA convention. And you've been my bud ever since. And we've been fighting this and a lot of other battles ever since. I feel like you are one of the most inspiring people in my life, but I feel bad almost looking at you as an inspiration because it is the pain that you hold and the tenacity and the strength in which you fight that inspires me. And I can't begin to tell you how not only what you've done has made a difference in people's lives, but also like how you've done it. Because I think I didn't know you before this. So I didn't know if this purpose and this drive was your way of disassociating from the pain. Because I couldn't fathom doing what your mission is and what it's been. But I think getting to know you, I've realized that this is who you are, being a great dad, even in this time of mourning, is just who you are. And that this process for you has, I think, made us all better. I know it's not a great thing to hear, like, you're such an inspiration. And I get that. But I just want to let you know that there are days where I, I don't think that I can fight for another second. And then I think of you and I go, you know what? Let's go. You play a role in how I've gone forward. And you and I have talked about this. I'll never forget a very early conversation between you and I where you talked to me about how you got involved in activism and how you just decided you're going after what's right and you don't care what people think. And I can't do things any other way. I just can't. And one of the hardest things I had in the immediate aftermath of the shooting was in the early days, I kept referring to my daughter in the past tense. She was my daughter, but she was murdered. And I struggled so badly with that. And one day I was like, I'm done doing that. I'm going to talk about her as my daughter. She is. And as a parent, what do we do? We spend our life reacting and responding to what happens to our children. That's what I am doing now. I'm almost embarrassed 
when people give me accolades because I don't really see myself as doing anything but being a dad that wants to stop the next dad and mom from feeling what I feel. But I also, and while I sometimes throw some elbows and some fists and can be a little caustic and abrasive in the process going forward, I try so hard to do everything with decency, respect, and civility because I want to model that as a dad for other younger people. And the first lesson I had with that, and this is where you come in, was in Dallas. They have no concern for safety of people on the street. Their only concern is more guns on the street and chaos. And so I am here to tell them they're wrong. I am here to tell them that I will be the father that breaks the back of that lobby. I'll never forget when we were there and you literally got surrounded by guys with guns who were challenging you about your stance and about the fact that you walk around with security, your calmness, your civility, your decency, and your willingness to engage with them was something I'll never forget. You know, maybe we all learn from one another, but I am Jesse and Jamie's dad. I always will be. And as long as they are my kids, I will be working to stop the next one. And... I believe that this is much to do with your activism. Last year, a gun violence prevention bill was signed into law for the first time in decades. Tell us what the difference is because of that bill. It's a great question. That was a big deal, that bill. And it wasn't just that bill. As a reminder, we also finally have a director of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which happened right around the same time. You haven't had one of them in over 10 years. Why is that, by the way? Republicans. It's really, it's actually very simple. But while gun sales were surging and gun violence was surging, they were in the process of trying to dismantle the ATF. The agency tasked with doing something about it. But it is a big deal that we have that now. It is a big deal that we passed the Safer Communities Act that is, in fact, it's not going to stop gun violence. And people are going to look around right now and say, it hasn't stopped, it hasn't stopped, but it's going to bend the curve but that takes time. You will see eventually the ability to really tackle gun violence and lower the gun violence death rate because of the law that was passed. Here's the really frightening part though. It's not even close to enough. Give me an example. When Jamie was killed in 2018, there were 300 million weapons in America. We now stand in a country that has over 400 million plus ghost guns. While we finally passed legislation, that legislation would have been the perfect legislation, let's say, 10 years ago. It's now behind the curve because we have accelerated the numbers of weapons that we have in the country. So we have to keep on pushing and fighting for more. We have to keep on working to push back on the lies of a lobby that treats my daughter and other victims as nothing more than a cost of doing business. We saw a real shift in their tactics after Tennessee. They skipped right over the thoughts and prayers. They didn't even bother with that this time around. They went right to the BS. And their mission is really singular. It's whatever it takes, sell more guns. 
believe in karma? I do. Listen, I don't want to say what happened to Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee is karma, but he is a guy who has actively spoken out against gun legislation, refused. Remember, part of the Safe for Communities Act was providing money for red flag laws or something that a state wants to set up like it. He refused to take the federal dollars for very political reasons. Governor Bill Lee and his wife, one of their closest friends, was killed in the Tennessee school shooting. And because of that, he's now said, we need to do something about gun violence. We should pass red flag laws in Tennessee. Do I think that's karma? I don't know if it is or it isn't, but I do believe karma has a way of redirecting people when it's necessary. But this country is in a really weird place right now. I don't want to wait for karma. I wonder if the NRA, the people in the NRA go to bed at night and they're like, wow, I am really fucked up. This is a fucked up job. I sign off on my kid's homework or they're reading and they didn't read. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I lied on their homework paper. And yet these people are making decisions. And mind you, they don't have as much power now as they did But I just think about like people's mindset all the time. And like, maybe you feel like this too. And I know we're getting on a philosophical tangent, but I do think that there is a way in which we talk about gun violence that excludes the heart and soul and the people. We've talked about it now so that it's become almost like the corporate version of gun violence, right? Where it doesn't feel real. As a funeral for a shooting victim wrapped up in DC today, gunfire erupted again. One man killed, three others hurt. From workplace violence to school shootings, according to a new survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation, a majority of U.S. adults have either personally or had a family member who's been impacted by a gun-related incident. Including suicide, nearly one in five Americans have lost a family member to gun violence, with people of color disproportionately impacted. I wonder if there is room in this conversation to really get back to the soul of the matter, which is the fact that there are people that are working towards more guns. Gun violence is good for business. So here's my thought on this. The majority of those in the NRA, the members, actually agree largely with you and I. It's the leadership. And they, and the lobby they serve, and it's not just the NRA, you have the NSSF and other entities as well. Gun violence is good for business. And the legislators that are beholden to them will do whatever it takes to serve that business. When it comes to karma, it's a lovely idea, but I just want to fucking fire every one of them and rid this country of them. I want to expose in the loudest way possible the lies that they have told, because if you go back to just 1977, when the NRA was taken over by this guy, Harlan Carter, who turned them into what they are today. And that's not that many years ago in the grand scheme of this country. If you just go back to there, they have pulled the ultimate con on America. And it's time to expose the con and let America finally be able to react to those who refuse to help stop the next one. 
I want to talk about your book, but just a couple of personal instances. I just went away with all my close girlfriends, and there were two things that really struck me and how it's become so normalized, but also how people from other countries view this. My husband took the kids out for a lovely dinner and then texted me and said, I'm going to take the kids to the movies. My first reaction was, please be careful. Please sit by an exit. That's where my mind went. And that's not how it's supposed to be. And then the other thing was, is we were all sitting around as women. We're all moms. And we were sitting around talking about schools and gun violence. And the lovely server who was taking care of us at the table came over and said, I don't mean to interrupt or seem like I'm eavesdropping, but is it safe to go to the supermarket in your country? I was like, holy shit. Like, no, actually, it's not. And so that's just to give you like the distortion of our safety and what we are willing to accept in this country as being acceptable, but also like how people look at us. And this is in Mexico, which, you know, many people have fleed and continue to flee because of unsafe situations and how they think and how they perceive our country. And I really think that your new book, American Carnage, gets to the heart of all of this. So I think the first question I want to ask you is tell us about how the NRA and the gun lobby are distorting, have been distorting the conversation around gun violence prevention. By the way, since you were just in Mexico, that's like the big new market now for the American gun manufacturers because our guns are flowing there and a part of the terrible violence happening in Mexico right now. So let's start with some really simple stuff. And I mentioned 1977, but America as a country up until that point was a gun safety country, always a country with gun owners. We always had the Second Amendment. We never debated what it said because people believed if responsible firearm ownership. But the decision to refocus the NRA and really make it a lobbying group for the gun manufacturers helped the NRA greatly, but it distorted the country's history. We have a history of gun laws to reduce gun violence. So let's talk about ways they did that. They've talked about the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Except we've seen over and over again, the data doesn't support it. I was just on an interview last night with some folks in Tennessee, where Tennessee last night was getting ready to pass legislation arming teachers. Former teacher, I would never carry a gun to school. And I know how to use a gun and I own it. I would never carry a gun in front of my students. I loved my students. I would die for them, but I would not shoot them. And this is an example, the lies that get told that army teachers is what's required to do something about what happened to my daughter. So here are some facts. There's 115,000 schools in America. Less than 400 since Columbine have had a school shooting. That's about 0.3%. Unfortunately for my family, we got caught up in this almost impossible to imagine statistic. When school shootings happen, they're horrific. And we all hear about them, but they are really rare. The only thing that putting more guns into that mix will do is more gun violence. Go back to Sandy Hook. That was the first time in the history of this country that the NRA actually used the line. It was within the week after Sandy Hook. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. 
they used Sandy Hook as a gun sales bonanza. So it is disgusting. But even defensive uses of guns, the data that they use is pure bullshit. It has been proven to be bullshit. And the data actually shows just the opposite, that the majority of guns in homes are not used for defensive purposes. In fact, when a gun in a home is used, it's unfortunately being used on usually someone who lives in that home. There's so much bullshit that they go through. And what we try to do with the book is go through all of the myths. Again, I remember talking to you five years ago about the gun lobby and all of these things that I was learning. I knew nothing back then. And in that first year after Jamie was killed, my first thought was, how did they manage this? Because this is all clearly bullshit. It's all clearly lies. But they were really successful. They were really good at it. And they were relentless at their messaging. And they did it in a way that was so almost intimidating that people didn't respond to it. You know what? Those days are over. It is time for people to know the truth. It's time for us to get the legislators who feel the way we do to actually push back, to hold hearings, to understand how we got to this place where 25% of all guns sold are now AR-15s. How did we get to this place? It was intentional. Listen, Jamie was born in 03. Now, back in 03, you had about 200 plus million guns in America. Now, again, we're over 400 million. And at that time, of the 200 million, under 2% of the guns sold were AR-15s. That's when Jamie was born, 19 years ago, under 2% of 200 million. So you now fast forward, 04, the man ends. That did not cause the spike in AR-15 sales. You know what did? In 2007, the Heller decision defined this term called common use. And following that term, the industry went on this business strategy of flooding our streets over manufacturing. Because remember what they said that we were manufacturing for, hunting and sport, declining markets, but they overproduced and then they had to market them and sell them. And they did. And now here we are 15 years later after the Heller decision with 25% of all guns sold as AR-15s. But are the sales going up? Because this is the thing that boggles my mind. When your daughter Jamie was murdered, the NRA had, I think, a larger visible public image, right, than it does today because they had their own freaking propaganda video channel, NRA TV, which is now defunct. Are people buying more guns with the NRA being less influential or are they not less influential? It just appears to be that way. And also, who the fuck is buying AR-15s? So remember what happened a few years ago? We had COVID. And in the early days of COVID, the Trump administration, remember our economy shut down? You couldn't go out and walk into a store. Gun shops, Trump said to all the states, have to be considered essential businesses. They were left open. You could drive by any gun store. There was a line around the block. And so during COVID, because of that, plus the anxiety that went with COVID and economic uncertainty and health uncertainty, Cause massive gun surge. Well, you have seen the empty store aisles. People are stocking up on hand sanitizer, toilet paper, 
But those are not the only things flying off the shelves amid this uh, coronavirus concern. NBC2 investigator Evan Dean discovered gun stores are packed with people looking to pack some heat. And so that's really the big reason for the jump from 18 to where we are now by 100 million guns. But, you know, listen, who's buying these? Again, it's one of the big lies that we cover in the book. It's a smaller percentage of Americans than it used to be. Guns are now in a smaller percentage of households across America than what used to be the case in the past. Because in the past, you had families that did engage in more hunting and other activities. You now have the majority of guns concentrated in about a third of the households. They're stockpiled. But unfortunately, many of these guns also end up in private trade you know, shows and getting sold outside of the ability to do any reasonable checks or they're being left in cars and stolen. Getting guns in this country now, unfortunately, is not complicated. But I will tell you this, the states that are doing the most to pass effective legislation, it's working. And you look at a state like New Jersey, where they do track guns used in crimes. 75, 77% of the guns that come into the state and are used in crimes are coming from out of state. The red states are flooding the blue states with guns. You're in California. California has great laws, but they come from other states. Arizona is not far away. Neither is Nevada. Correct. So at the start of American Carnage, you point out some extreme racism and anti-Semitism that has thrived in the leadership of the NRA. How much has that extremism contributed to the racism and anti-Semitism that is visible in our country today? It's all connected. It's the same people. And it's the NRA and the way they look at the world is through these racist, anti-Semitic lenses and the groups that they connect with. Let's face it, a lot of these extremist groups that were involved in January 6th, it's the same people. It's the same people. And I don't mean the members. I don't, I want to be clear here. I'm not denigrating NRA members. It's the leadership. And so you've seen it when folks from the NRA or other groups, when they want to viscerally attack me, it always has an anti-Semitic component to it. They immediately go to the anti-Semitism. I don't know if they were the first group to use that tactic or not, but all those extreme groups do it now. It's interesting how it feels like they all got the memo. And that's what goes to what you were saying before, as far as like they stick to their messaging and they just repeat it over and over again until people believe it. Not everybody, but some people. And you now have a political party that has embraced it. Because it's worked. It's worked. McCarthy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of them, they all say Soros bat now. Okay? They all do it. They all engage in both anti-Semitic and racist dog whistles day in and day out. Why? Because it's worked, but it really is now all about a political base. They're no longer trying to reach the majority of Americans. They're trying to reach that part of the Republican Party that votes. And that's it. And that's who they are. I should mention that you co-wrote the book with Thomas Gabor. And I want to go back to the myths that the book refutes with, again, data and research and all of it. 
you mentioned this a little bit before about how the concentration of guns is in fewer hands. What's the danger in that? Those are also the same people who talk about themselves as a militia. They talk about needing to take on a government that is out of control. And how do they determine that? Is it because the government wants to do things, for example, to reduce gun violence? Do they decide that's a dangerous government? They need to use their weapons to react? Will they decide it's a dangerous government when at some point policy is enacted to codify Roe v. Wade? Will they decide that's a dangerous government and they need to use their weapons to react? You have this concentrated group of America who is stockpiling not just guns, but ammunition. So it's like philosophy that is what's scary. And there's this myth that more guns equals less crime, which I don't know how we got there. That is one of the biggest bunches of bullshit. The NRA often likes to say that more guns equal less crime. Unfortunately, yet another study tells us that is not the case. Researchers at Stanford have concluded that contrary to the commonplace statement that right to carry laws and concealed carry laws decrease violent crime, such laws correlate with an increased number of violent crimes since 1999 in states that have passed these laws. And every bit of data doesn't support it. Red states, simply put, are more deadly states. Per capita, you have far higher degrees of gun violence and deaths related to guns in red states than blue states. It's really simple. Everybody loves to look at New York City or Chicago. You have a whole lot of people in those cities. So you may have more instances of gun violence, for example, but per capita, far less. And it is such a load of shit when they say it. It's easy to document. And what about defensive gun use? I mean, the gun lobby says that there are 2.5 million defensive gun uses in the United States every year. Is that true? We do a tremendous job of really detailing the truth behind all of that. But it is a fraction of that number. That 2.5 million comes from a study done years ago by these guys who even they've had to acknowledge their premises and data was way out of whack. And then you had this guy, Don Lott, who grabbed onto it and who started writing analyses of their work. And he, he got called out for his bullshit. He went ahead and he created an alter ego, Mary Roche, to support what he does. It's all bullshit. It is all bullshit. The truth is, the only rationale for continuing to push the idea of defensive uses is the more Americans are afraid of one another, the more they believe they need a gun. That's it. Were there any myths or answers that you uncovered that surprised you when you were researching the book? Not that surprised me. I think some surprised me because of just how provably false they were. And one was the defensive uses. I think another one that is so clearly provably false and that was personal to me 
was this whole discussion that you always hear blaming the taking of guns in Germany for the march of the Nazis and for all the Jews dying. It's something they say. It's just not true. It is simply not true. And that one is personal to me. I lost family members because of the Holocaust. I am a Jewish person. My daughter is dead because of gun violence. And there are certain things in here where they're so provably false, but yet they really got away with it. And I do think it's important numbers. They don't paint the whole picture. So I want to give you an opportunity to paint this picture. We have 46,000 Americans dying from gunshot wounds every year. But that number doesn't paint the whole picture, does it? So what's the broader scope of gun violence? The broader scope is it isn't just those we bury. It's not just my daughter. My son, who was also there, who listened to the shots, is forever impacted. My wife and I will be forever impacted. I'll never get to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'll never be a grandparent to her kids. I will always have to go to a cemetery in order to be physically close to her. And I will always be mentally impaired because of it. That's just the way it is. And yet, I'm just one family. All of the families of all the victims of gun violence, those murdered, those injured, know exactly what I'm talking about when I paint that picture. Then there's all the others who were in the area at a school where there was a school shooting, who were terrorized and traumatized. Then there's the medical community that treats these people. They are traumatized by the gun violence they're seeing. The first responders, they are traumatized. Some of my best friends happen to be some of our local law enforcement who were traumatized by what they saw at the school that day. And to this day still are. It isn't just about those we bury. The reality of gun violence is so vastly bigger than just those we bury. And the cost of gun violence to our economy as a result is enormous and all to serve an industry that looks at what I just described as a cost of doing business. And an opportunity to sell more guns. Yeah. Alyssa, the reason why I am determined to get Smith & Wesson on the stand under oath. Side by side with high-powered attorneys, a father's anguish, anger, turned into what could be earth-shattering action. They knew, they had to know, that by putting all of those weapons on the street, that innocent kids, innocent people like my kid are going to die. Fred Guttenberg, whose 14-year-old daughter Jamie was gunned down in her Parkland High School, joining forces with the father of Alex Schachter, another 14-year-old who lost his life at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, together in filing the first lawsuit in Florida against a gun manufacturer in an effort to challenge the law that protects gun makers and sellers from civil litigation. I'm the only Parkland family that has continued trying to sue them, and the other families never did because the personal financial risk to us is huge. And in order to sue them, because there's a federal law called PLACA, which makes it almost impossible. Can you describe that? So PLACA is a federal, it's a liability shield for the gun manufacturers, in essence. And it was passed back about, call it about 20 years ago in the United States. And it makes it impossible for guys like me to sue them. With a few 
really small exceptions, some to do with like defective marketing practices if your state has a law allowing it. Connecticut had a law that eventually the Sandy Hook families were able to use to get to the gun manufacturer. Florida is not Connecticut and has a really challenging statute that also says if I sue the manufacturer and I lose, the manufacturer can sue me for not just legal costs, but loss of income. And I am trying to get through the Florida statute so I can file my federal law. Why am I doing it? Not because I want to make money. I want them under oath. I want them to tell how they marketed these weapons to children and at the time knew the dangerous consequences. And at the time, in spite of knowing the dangerous consequences, did nothing to ensure the safety of those who might be impacted by those dangerous consequences. I want the tobacco moment in court. That's what I want. And how is that looking? It's tough. The legal part of this is a real challenge. We're at it for five years now, and we're appealing the last ruling up to the Florida Supreme Court. But because of the challenge of the legal process, I have filed a claim with the Federal Trade Commission, which is, in essence, the lawsuit I'd like to file. And I'm trying to get our friends in the Senate who now have subpoena power to hold hearings, because we can get them under oath there. But I want America to know the truth. I want America to understand the full story of how these weapons went from being under 2% of all guns sold in 2003 to 25% now without any regard for public safety. And I do want to make it clear, states across the country are trying to enact more permissive gun laws. For example, where you live, Florida, right? It's worse than that. What they did, they signed a permitless carry bill, which, by the way, means you no longer have to endure any kind of training in addition to being able to get a weapon, whether you are dangerous or not. But as a slap in the face to those who have already experienced gun violence in schools in Florida, they also changed the law or the penalty around what happens if you're caught on a school campus with a gun as part of the permitless carry legislation. It used to be a felony. You would go to jail. Now, it's a misdemeanor. You get a $15 fine and you go home. Okay, so any kid who wants to commit an act of gun violence on a campus and wants to test out what, you know, is likely and what isn't and wants to walk on to see what's going to happen, they go home now with a misdemeanor. They learn what they've got to know and they can go back. I mean, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. Let's talk about the hope and the mission. Your nonprofit, Orange Ribbons for Jamie. Tell people about Orange Ribbons for Jamie. Tell people about how you recently started Paws of Love. And also let people know where they can check it out and help with your mission. So orange is Jamie's favorite color. Always was. And when she was killed, her dance friends, you know, my daughter was a competitive dancer. They all got together at the dance studio, made thousands of orange ribbons 
that we gave out at the funeral. And at the funeral, I talked about the start of this orange ribbons movement. I didn't know what it really meant. I just knew something was going to happen. And three weeks later, I was in a Home Depot. Someone came up to me and asked me about the fabric orange ribbon that I was wearing. And when I told them what it was, they said, you know, that's the color of the gun safety movement, which at the time I did not know. And that was the day I decided we're going to start Orange Ribbons for Jamie and make that the symbol of the movement. And Orange Ribbons for Jamie, what it has evolved into is a foundation to support causes that were important to Jamie in life, but also to educate on why her life was cut short. So a couple of things that we've done, because Jamie always was one who was committed to others and others of all abilities. And so some of the things we've done that were real public is we made a fairly significant donation to World Central Kitchen, who was doing tremendous work getting around to communities affected by gun violence, but also in Ukraine. We've started a college scholarship program, and it's for kids of all abilities. So there's three buckets. One is a kid who's going to school to major in something where you're going to be a helper to others. That's number one. And you have to have at least 100 community service hours because Jamie did. And so that was important to us. Number two major is someone who's going to major in dance. But again, they have to have community service hours. And the number three bucket and what makes it different than other scholarships is someone who has a documented special need. My daughter volunteered her time for kids with special needs. She dreamt of being a pediatric physical therapist and helping somebody who needed surgical repairs, let's say, because they have limb deformities, and she dreamt of helping that person walk for the first time, because that's who Jamie was. I'm really proud of the scholarship program we've started, but I think the program that is going to really come to define Orange Ribbons for Jamie going forward is Pause of Love. My wife has said for the past year that it's great that we give out money to a lot of other groups, but she really wanted us to have our own defining signature thing that when people look at Orange Ribbons for Jamie, it's unique to it and it's unique to Jamie. And Jamie was obsessed with her dogs. Jamie was obsessed with everybody's dogs. And so one day in the early part of the criminal trial last summer, where they were bringing dogs into the courtroom, support dogs, just to sit with us families, we were driving home one day and my wife said, I want to do something with dogs. They were on Germans for Jamie. I said, okay. We started talking about it. And by the time we got home, we had this idea that we wanted to give dogs to families affected by gun violence. And so that's what we're doing. And it's not just the dog and it's companion dogs. They're not trained emotional support dogs, but they're puppies, usually about 10 weeks old. But we pay for the entire first year, the training, the medical, the food, the grooming, all the supplies. because. The truth is, and I wrote about this in my first book, Find the Helpers, my family survived because of our dogs. I'll never forget how important those dogs were in my house. One of my two dogs was four months old when Jamie was killed. That dog saved me. And we want to do that now for other families affected by gun violence. And we're partnering with some great people as part of the effort. And we're getting ready to actually give out our next dog next week. I love that so much. And for people who are listening, you could go to orangeribbonsforjamie.org to find out more information and how people can help. 
And Jamie is spelled J-A-I-M-E, not the totally traditional way. So when they spell out orange ribbons for Jamie, I just want to make sure they have that correct. Are you hopeful? What gives you hope? So I'll tell you what gives me hope. It's that 70-something percent of America that I know agrees with where we're at. It's the fact that enough of them showed up in 2018 to vote and we flipped the House. And then in 2020 to vote and we flipped the Senate and elected Joe Biden. I understand the reality of gerrymandering and what it meant to the last House election. But you know what? I have hope that we are going to see a level of turnout in the next election, unlike any we've ever seen, and that we're going to be okay. And that America has tired, has just grown weary of preventable gun violence. They have, and they want to do something about it. And I think that those elected people who refuse to listen, who say dangerous, insightful things, they're going to get fired. Fred Guttenberg, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Love you, my friend. I lived within the machine that that built this hate and conspiracy we now live with in far too much of our country. Um, I saw with my own eyes how the NRA radicalized this whole debate. It radicalized the issue. It handed it off to the right side of our political aisle. Eventually, Donald Trump put that whole thing on steroids. And let's face it, um, fear and conspiracy were very effective political tools for the right side of the aisle, certainly for the last five or six years. Sadly, they're exactly the same things that drive gun sales. And while the vast majority of people in this country, the vast majority of gun owners are responsible gun owners, I, I count myself among those, it only takes a small percentage of people who are really affected by the sort of fear and conspiracy um, that the NRA perfected. And when they're gun owners, bad things can happen. Well, we have to stop believing the lies. And make no mistake... The gun industry lies. It never stops lying. But even if it didn't, even if every single thing it said is true, it wouldn't change the fact that we are the most armed country in the developed world. And we have the highest level of gun violence in the developed world. It doesn't take a genius to understand that more guns equals more deaths. We have to be speakers for the dead, every single one of us, and hold the politicians who use the gun industry lies to increase the carnage accountable, or it will never stop. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.